This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on osteoporosis. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Osteoporosis predominantly affects white postmenopausal women, but men and premenopausal women can also be affected. Remarkably, the lifetime risk of fragility fracture is 40% for a white woman, and hip fractures or spinal crush fractures could not be more serious in older people. Can we prevent these fractures? To tell us, we have on the line Professor Apinder Sahota, Professor of Orthogeriatric Medicine at Nottingham University Hospitals NHS Trust. And importantly, Apinder is also author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on osteoporotic spinal compression fractures. So, Apinder, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking you, what exactly is osteoporosis? Essentially, it's a clinical systemic skeletal problem, which basically causes thinning and weakening of the bones, which then easily break. And the common and perhaps the most common fractures that we see are those of the hip, spine and the wrist. And as you've obviously mentioned, it is quite an extensive problem. And it's estimated that currently uh, about three and a half million people have osteoporosis in the UK. Okay, thank you. Um, Tell us about assessment of patients with osteoporosis. So it's now quite easy to uh, um, assess these patients and really in routine care there are no, a number of online tools that are really quite helpful. And the most commonly used tool is the, um, the FRAX tool, F-R-A-X. So you can just uh, routinely just search this engine in and just put in the patient's risk factors and that will give you an estimated risk whether you should treat or further assess the patient. And the other most commonly assessed tool online is the Q-Fracture Risk Assessment Tool. And again, both of these tools will guide you whether you should actually treat the patient or whether you can actually reassure the patient or whether you should do a more formal assessment using a bone entity scan. Okay. And can you tell us broadly what are the components that these uh, assessment tools ask about? Yeah, so what these uh, assessment tools do essentially are looking at what is the patient's risk of really having a fracture. We've moved away from just actually treating the BMD and it's really about treating the patient. You know, what is it that the additional factors the patient may have in addition to a low bone strength that will increase their risk? And it's looking at things around smoking history, um, alcohol intake, maternal history of a fracture, previous fractures if they've had, drugs that they're actually taking which all may um, increase risk. And then the computer does a a calculated assessment and gives a future fracture risk and therefore advises whether further treatment or further assessment should be undertaken. Okay, thank you. And and BMD stands for bone mineral density, is that correct? That's right, yes. Yeah, okay, great. Tell us about common pitfalls in assessment. What are the common mistakes that you see being made? Certainly, first and foremost, I think the the biggest mistake is perhaps we don't assess people enough with a bone scan just to start with. So it's certainly really helpful that if you're going to treat patients longer term, it's really useful to actually have a baseline scan. However, in certain patients, it may be difficult to assess the patient. And certainly as we get older, and certainly for the, the early patients, certainly those age 80 and over, multiple wear and tear changes in the spine can make the interpretation quite difficult. 
Secondly, there's other underlying problems. For example, if there's multiple fractures inside the spine, other types of bone problems, uh, pagets or bone cancer. And again, this can make the scan quite uh, difficult to uh, interpret. But usually the technician undertaking the scan will assess this and then will usually recommend further advice if actually needed. Okay, thank you. And are there any recent advances in assessment uh, specifically? Not so much, really. I mean, the, the bone entity scan continues to be the current gold standard. And, and really what we've seen increasingly over the last few years is really access towards these scans and, and certainly allowing GPs easy access. So this really forms the main form of both the assessment, both in terms of fracture risk assessment in terms of where we have the best evidence to how the drugs work and in terms of monitoring and uh, treatment response long term. Okay, thank you. That's very helpful. Tell us about the, 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 the basics of management of patients with osteoporosis. Where clearly we've um, undertaken a risk assessment and we've, um, uh, you know, we've had a scan and we've made a decision to treat the patient. The first and most important thing really is in terms of lifestyle risk. So clearly where there are lifestyle risk factors that can be addressed, these should really be addressed first around smoking, uh, alcohol intake, uh, exercise, calcium intake, vitamin D intake. And it's usually quite easy to certainly to optimize your diet with changes as you feel necessary or taking over-the-counter supplements. And for patients where we're considering the more potent types of medication, then it's clearly important to ensure that the vitamin D and calcium levels are, are normal. And in those cases, it may be reasonable to undertake a blood test. And if those patients are quite low, then it would be sensible to consider a loading dose of uh, vitamin D. And then once you have completed those steps, then it's really looking at what are the more common types of specialist treatments. And currently the NICE guidance recommends oral alendronate as first-line treatment for these patients. Okay, and oral alendronate is given how often? Um, could you tell us? And, and in the past, I seem to remember oral alendronate, there had to be lots of specialist instructions of how the patient had to take it. Do tell us about that. Yeah, so the alendronate has to be taken once every week. The recommended dosing is usually to be taken first thing in the morning so as a patient rises from bed uh, and then the, the, once they've taken the tablet should be washed down with at least 200 mils of clear water. The patient then should not return to bed and certainly not attempt to lie flat for at least the next half an hour to 40 minutes and then the patient can take their um, uh, the breakfast and their normal tablets preferably 35 to 40 minutes after they've taken their um, alendronate tablet. Okay, and, and the reason why that is a problem with the esophagus, is that correct? Yes, yeah, so a number of things really. So firstly, we know that the tablet is not that well absorbed, so it's really important that the tablet is taken on, on a, an empty stomach. And so clearly when you wake up first thing in the morning and not really had your breakfast, the stomach is quite empty. Secondly, there have been some case reports where the, when the patient has taken the tablet and the tablet is lodged inside the certainly the mid to lower esophagus, 
and that's led to further erosions and bleeding problems. And so therefore, the recommendation clearly states that actually taking a 200 mils of water to wash the tablet through and then actually remaining upright will reduce that risk of having problems. Okay, thank you. That's very helpful. Let's move on to recent advances in management. Tell us about recent advances. What's really quite exciting is that we now have not only a number of treatments, but just to start with, the number of treatments that are certainly the first and second line treatments are now quite cheap. So these treatments have come off patent. So these treatments are relatively um, cheap in terms of cost. Secondly, we have now two types of uh, monoclonal antibodies, one that's uh, acting towards the um, osteoclasts, and these are cells that um, eat away bone. Um, this is a drug called uh, Dernusumab. So the other new drug that we have is a medication called Romosusumab, and this is an anti-sclerostin inhibitor. And essentially the way this works is that um, sclerostin is a protein which actually made inside the bone cells, which actually inhibits um, the osteoblasts, and the osteoblasts are, are the cells that actually lay down bone. So if we have a drug that blocks this compound, which stops the osteoblast working, and therefore we get better and more uh, sustained effects of the osteoblasts, overall leading to increased bone being formed. We currently have the use of um, an anabolic agent called teriperatide, and what's really exciting about this, this is, this is another drug that's come off patent, which means now there are newer formulations coming in which are quite cheap. So really helping access in terms of patients towards the best sorts of treatment that we can offer them. Okay. And these three drugs, are they all licensed for use currently? All of them have been licensed. Romo Susamab was recently licensed uh, just a couple of months ago. Denusumab has now been licensed for a few years, and the other drugs which have now come off patent are actually also um, available. So, so really, in terms of medication for the treatment, um, we have a good range of uh, medicine that we can now use. Okay, great. And are these drugs injectable treatments or to be taken orally? Yeah. Looking at the pitfalls in, in certainly some of the treatments that we that we actually give, a big problem is really the the persistence of the oral treatment. And when we look at persistence, that's a measure of both um, with the compliance, so essentially how we take the tablet, and as I've earlier explained, alendronate can be quite difficult. And secondly, if we look at the adherence, that's a measure of how long patient stays on a treatment for. And what we now have really good data showing that the persistence with oral treatments like uh, alendronate, which is a combination of both the compliance and the adherence is quite poor. So I think there's going to be a real change in sort of shift in, in using these newer medicines because these newer medicines can be given both intravenously. So we can have uh, drugs like uh, zoledronate, which is given as a infusion once every year. And these newer drugs like denusumab is given as a subcutaneous uh, injection once every six months, and romozusumab is given as an injection once every month. So really changing the way in terms of perhaps we can improve compliance longer term. Okay, thank you. That's very helpful. And what about other pitfalls in management other than uh, poor adherence to treatment? So I think it's really important to 
to ensure the patient understands why they're taking the treatment and what the importance in terms of the benefits. There are some rare side effects uh, with most of these tablets and medicines and they have been recognised and the two of the most notably commented on is one is um, osteonecrosis of the jaw, um, typically known as ONJ, and the other one is atypical fractures of the femur. Now, just to reassure that these side effects are extremely, extremely rare, but obviously they're quite well documented inside the media. So it's really important to um, discuss this with the patient and Certainly all patients that we treat, it's a balance of the benefits and the risks of treatment and weighing them out. And certainly evidence has shown that the risks of treatment are far less than actually the benefits in terms of preventing further fractures long term. Okay, thank you. Last question. What have we missed? What common questions are you asked by doctors about osteoporosis that we haven't covered up to now? So some of the other exciting areas is looking at the role of uh, minimally invasive surgery. So essentially, for example, we take patients who sustain a hip fracture. Approximately a third of these will have uh, symptoms that are so severe that they end up having to come to hospital. And increasingly for those patients, by conservative uh, treatment, that is uh, strong analgesia and physio, these patients actually still struggle to mobilize and continue in pain. And so these patients, it may be reasonable to offer them what's called vertebroplasty. And this is a small operation which is using keyhole surgery where you can inject cement into the vertebrae, which can also help the patient. And the same principle can also apply within the sacrum. And we know that up to 60% of those who come to hospital having fallen and broken their pelvis and up to 60% can also have a co-existing fracture of the sacrum. And again, inserting cement into the sacrum can also help the patient. So changing the way perhaps we manage some of our very acute patients who are in such pain problems that there are minimally invasive surgical interventions where we can offer these patients. Okay, thank you very much, Apinder. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and you hope that we'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you find it, want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes.